Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 62. Last week, I wrapped up the comprehensive history of ancient Egypt. In that last episode, I covered how the Romans adopted their culture to that in Egypt, essentially through a hybridization of both Greek and Roman culture in the formerly great nation. This time was marked by a strong military presence a caste system with Romans, then Greeks at the top, and native Egyptians at the bottom, along with economic reforms. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm summarizing ancient Egyptian history, covering the prehistoric period through the end of the Middle Kingdom. I'll wrap up the summary in the next episode. If you've been listening to the podcast from the beginning of Chapter 3, You know that I previously covered the contents of this episode in an exceedingly detailed depth. So, the current episode is by no means meant to serve as a substitute for the deep dives. Instead, think of it as a refresher. After all, some of the content was covered over a year ago, assuming, of course, you're listening in real time. The history of ancient Egypt covers the period from early prehistoric settlements of the northern Nile Valley to the Roman conquest, which occurred in 30 BC, a period of over 10,000 years. The era of the pharaohs began around the 32nd century BC, when Upper and Lower Egypt were unified and lasted for nearly 3,000 years ending when the country fell to Alexander the Great of Macedon in 332 BC. Throughout this time, and more as a manner of artificial structure, Egypt's history is divided into several different periods. These are organized around the ruling dynasty of each pharaoh, and these dynasties are grouped into periods that represent an alternating cycle between centralized and decentralized governance essentially meaning the pharaohs were in charge, then the country split with local control. But the exact year, and in some cases, ranges of years, are not set in stone, are steely. Instead, it's a bit more fluid, and it changes as more research occurs, more artifacts are uncovered, and more text is translated, or retranslated. The same is true about the names of the rulers, They tend to vary a bit based on the source. Overall, the dates and names of the rulers first started with Manetho, who recorded the history during the beginning of the Ptolemaic Kingdom, so around the 3rd century BC. And these names and dates have been refined and edited exhaustively over the two millennia since. In many cases, the list, the history really, is subject to an ongoing debate. Finally, when I quote a date, do not assume that it's agreed on by everyone. The safe assumption is the opposite. Instead, most of the dates represent the general agreement between researchers. And with that introduction slash caveat complete, let's get started. The Nile has given life to Egyptian society and culture from the very beginning. And in the beginning when there was no society or culture, nor written documentation, so no history, the richness of the land sustained the inhabitants. The scientific community usually refers to these peoples as hunter-gatherers, 
because, well, there was no agriculture. That would come soon, though, particularly early in the rich, annually flooded, and consequently replenished region. The first traces of occupation can be found with small, very old artifacts and rock carvings. These finds are usually along the rock terraces above the local flood level, and also in oases. Well, many of the spots are oases now, but then, the climate was much different, much greener. More on that in a minute. These early inhabitants would hunt, fish, and of course gather foodstuffs along the length of the Great River. They would use tools made of stone, hence the designation Stone Age. They would begin the slow domestication of animals, beginning with the dog. It's important to understand that the dog was first domesticated in Europe and Asia, so it's a bit unclear if they were the first domesticated animal in Egypt. Sheep, goats, pigs, and cows would follow shortly afterwards, or maybe before. And then the cat. But it's completely arguable if the cat was ever truly domesticated, or if they merely tolerate our existence. Of course, the natural next step after these hunter-gatherers was the development of stationary agriculture. It's been proposed that this occurred in the Nile Valley around 11,000 BC and was developed into a grain-grinding culture utilizing the earliest type of sickle blades. Now, while grain is ground using stone, you can't make an effective sickle blade from stone. These were probably made of copper, and that leads us to the earliest portion of the appropriately named Copper Age. And a quick note, there is no universal, meaning worldwide, date that marks the transition from one age to the next. Instead, this varies based on the location, and when that area adopted the next innovation in toolmaking. This concept can be easily seen in the transition from the Copper to Bronze Age in Egypt, the Middle East, Europe, and India, at least in some spots in these broad areas. It's thought that the Bronze Age began around 3300 BC. It would not begin in East Asia for another 1,000 years. Back to Egypt. The earliest evidence of cattle domestication in Egypt can be found during this period, meaning around 10 to 9,000 BC, and in the southern portion of the country, around the present-day border with Sudan. There is a dispute among academics if these cows were actually domesticated, were wild, or something in between. About the same time, specifically around 7,500 BC, the region began a slow drying up. What had been lush, green, prime grazing land slowly shifted to the sands of what we know as the Sahara Desert. This drying up process was so slow, it would take about the next 5,000 years to get to the point that it is today. And if you're doing the math in your head, it took 5,000 years, give or take, to dry up. And that ended just under 5,000 years ago, and it's been the shifting sands since. This ancient climate change slowly condensed the wide-ranging agricultural people from the vast savannas, who generation after generation migrated to the Nile Valley, 
and as they settled in this valley, they roamed less, staying in place and developing a somewhat unified culture. It's hard, with the limited time horizon that we have, to imagine such slow change. And we have the benefit of written history, so we can at least have a sort of perspective into what was happening thousands of years ago. At that time, they had no writing, only oral tradition to carry on their stories. Stories that became legend, legend that became myth, myth that was treated as truth. At the time, the Nile Valley was essentially less than optimum, as the banks of the river were choked with brush, brush that benefited from the annual flood and reliable enough water supply. These settlers, forced inward from the creeping desert, would work to clear the land. Soon after that, they would begin to irrigate, to the point that immense progress on both the clearing and the irrigation had been made by the 6th millennium BC. At the same time, the culture was showing organization, as seen through the construction of large structures. A millennium or two later, the structures would advance from mere stacked stone to stone block conjoined with mortar. Overall, in this period, so between 5500 and 3000 BC, the country was really just a network of disconnected, so autonomous, small settlements along the Nile. Oh, the places they would go. The agriculture of the period had expanded to include barley and emmer. Emmer is an early variety of what we think of as wheat. And there was another innovation, one that would be leveraged in the Old Testament account of Joseph. The Egyptians had learned to store wheat, in their case at this time, in earthen pits lined with reed mats. And we begin to see the first pottery, at least the first pieces that have survived to be rediscovered in the modern era. These red and brown pieces with black tops date to about 4500 BC and can be found in what would later be known as Middle Egypt. And with the discovery of pottery that would be slowly refined and improved upon, researchers gained an important tool in further dating cultures, as well as a method for determining the contact between the various villages. The next pottery innovations are decorated with white parallel lines, and these are found in both Upper and Lower Egypt, indicating contact, and likely trade, between the villages found on the Nile. But that's not all from the period. Containers that contained copper have been found. And this is particularly interesting since raw copper is not native to Egypt. The closest places to find it are on the Sinai Peninsula, in Nubia, so, at the time, there was contact and probably trade between the Egyptians and one or both of the foreign cultures. And given that the vessels containing the metal were found at El Amre, and that this location is essentially in the middle of the two places with natural copper, it's just as likely from one as the other. But there's something else. At the same location, both obsidian and a small amount of gold were found, both of these were likely from Nubia, as it's the closest natural source. Around 3500 BC, a culture known as the Gerze, aka the Nakada II, arose. These people would lay the foundation for the emergence of the great Egyptian culture. 
they first established in the Nile Delta, so far north Egypt, lower Egypt. Naturally, they had one direction to push, inland, south, and towards middle and upper Egypt. At the same time the Gerze were on the rise, precipitation was dropping, and this actually benefited the people, as it triggered a greater reliance on the crops grown in the fertile Nile floodplain, and was to the detriment of competing cultures further from the river. The Gerze became more sedentary and innovated agricultural production, leading to occupations that did not directly engage in agriculture. And with that, the beginnings of urbanization with cities up to 5,000 residents. Buildings were no longer made of just stone, but were also made of mud-straw bricks, like what was seen in Exodus chapter 5. That's not to say that the biblical passage dates to the period, but that the technology cited in the passage probably does. Tools and weapons, which when you think about it, are really just specialized tools too so that's a bit redundant. Anyway, at the time, tools were made increasingly with copper, and stone implements were utilized less. Then something really surprising, at least to me. Finds dating to the period include silver, gold, and lapis lazuli, and these likely originated in what is today Afghanistan, and the driving distance, which probably approximates the walking or caravanning distance between these two places, is about 3,200 miles or 5,200 kilometers, which is roughly the distance from Seattle to Miami. And this gets us to about 3,200 BC, which is just before the first dynasty. At this time, what would become Egypt was divided into two distinct kingdoms, upper and lower. The line of demarcation between the two was around the modern city of Cairo, and when the two would merge and become the first dynasty, the history of Egypt would change forever. And we can actually accurately term it the history, as it was then that records began being kept. These records date the kingdom merger to around 3150 BC. Egyptian tradition names the first king of the unified country as Menes. Modern research claims it was Narmer. Menes may have been an alternate name of Narmer's successor. Remember several minutes ago when I spoke of the history being constantly evolving? All back to the beginning of the history? Yet another example. By then, the overall culture for the region was very well developed culture that included customs, art, architecture, and social structure, all closely associated with their religion. It was so well developed that there would be few changes over the next 3,000 years. In fact, about the only change through the many dynasties that followed would be the top deity. Of course, there are more details on that distinction in prior episodes. About the same time, the historic record begins to show the precursors to the pyramids. The first pharaoh of the third dynasty, Djoser, ordered the construction of the first pyramid, beginning an iconic era in history. These early dynastic royal tombs were known as mastabas, which would evolve to the third dynasty step pyramids. 
which would further evolve to what we think of as a traditional Egyptian pyramid. It was during the Third Dynasty that the era known as the Old Kingdom came into existence. This period would span the years between about 2700 and 2200 BC in the Third through Sixth Kingdoms. The Old Kingdom was based around the city of Memphis in Lower Egypt. It was near here, on the southern outskirts of what is today Cairo, that the iconic pyramids in the Sphinx at Giza can be found. Early in the unification, the pharaohs would establish a national governmental administration, usually led by appointed regional royal governors. And given the reality of a large country, with slow transportation and information flow, especially by our modern standards, this was the only way to run such an area. During the Old Kingdom, what had been independent states were organized into administrative districts known as gnomes. And remembering back to the last episode, these governmental districts would last through the Roman period, so well into A.D. The former local rulers, or at least their pre-unification predecessors, they would assume the role of a nomarch, a monarch, of a gnome. The administrative governor would rule his district with the consent and authority of the reigning pharaoh. And the pharaoh, at least in the era of the Old Kingdom, was viewed as the living embodiment of a deity, being worshipped so that he would ensure the annual Nile flood that led to an abundant crop of wheat and barley. The Old Kingdom would peak in the Fourth Dynasty. The founder of this dynasty, Snefru, is thought to have ordered the construction of at least three pyramids. It was his son Khufu, aka Cheops, who would have the Great Pyramid of Giza built around 2570 BC. This was over 1,000 years before it's believed that Joseph of Genesis and Exodus governed Egypt. Khufu's son, Khafra, along with his grandson, Minkor, would build the remaining pyramids at Giza. Only a large, centralized government could have organized such a feat. Throughout history, it was believed that slaves built the pyramids, but the current theory is that peasants from all across the area converged on the construction site during the season when the Nile flood had their farmland underwater. So, nothing to do at home. These imported workers provided the general labor, while specialists, perhaps full-time, meaning year-round workers, provided the specialized labor, such as stonecutters, painters, and mathematicians. The 5th dynasty would begin around 2500 BC. It was during this time that their sun deity, Ra, took on greater importance. With this came a decreased importance placed on pyramids and other funerary structures. Instead, construction efforts were redirected towards sun temples. This continued through the last king of the dynasty, who is noted for the first instance of pyramid text. These are the oldest known Egyptian religious carvings and were found in the below-ground portions of the pyramids at Saqqara. They are among the oldest known mentions of the afterlife ruler Osiris. The Old Kingdom saw an expanding international trade that would lead to the importation of ebony, ivory, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. 
Also, cedar from Lebanon was brought to the kingdom. This trade would occur not only over land, but also via the Great Sea to the north, the Mediterranean. Towards the end of the Old Kingdom, during the 6th dynasty, the pharaoh's authority gradually weakened, with the power vacuum being filled by the local nomarchs, who had slowly begun to pass their titles and authority down to their sons, removing the pharaoh from the leadership decision-making process. At the same time, the last ruler of the 6th dynasty, Papi II, Neferker, sat on the throne for an incredible 94 or so years. And there's a downside to ruling so long. He likely outlived his normal successor, and this may have led to conflicts between all of his many sons and grandsons who thought they should have inherited the title, and more importantly, the power that came along with it. As if that was not enough, several years of drought, which was brought on by a much lower than normal Nile flooding, which would lead to famine, not a stable time. Towards the end of his reign, the country fell into several civil wars, conflicts that would last for decades after his death, and with that, the Old Kingdom ended and the First Intermediate Period began, a period that would last about 200 years. During this interlude between kingdoms, the land was generally ruled by local, concurrent, competing kings, and therefore dynasties, each fighting a constant battle with the others for territory, authority, power, and prosperity. This first intermediate period will last from the end of the 6th through most of the 11th dynasties. During the period, Lower Egypt was possibly even invaded by outsiders, who were referred to as Asiatic bowmen. As if that was not enough, the societal breakdown led to other consequences. The pyramids and tombs of the Old Kingdom were looted. No respect for their predecessors. Future leaders, especially those from the forthcoming Middle Kingdom, would attempt to prevent this from happening to their tombs by decorating the vaults with magic spells. You should know how that ended up working out. By the middle of the 22nd century BC, the local kings of Lower Egypt of the 9th and 10th dynasties began to consolidate power. At the same time, the 11th dynasty of Upper Egypt, ruling from Thebes, reunited that area. Then, around 2055 BC, forces from the 11th defeated those from the 10th and the land was once again reunited into one great kingdom. It was Pharaoh Mentuhotep II, in his 39th year of rule, who would be recognized as the first ruler of the United Kingdom, marking the end of the First Intermediate Period and the beginning of the Middle Kingdom. This period would run between 2030 and 1650 BC, encompassing the 11th through 13th dynasties. In the beginning of the Middle Kingdom, there were apparently military expeditions to the Levant. Also, the pharaoh would place a vizier at the top of the kingdom's administrative government. The next several rulers all were named successive versions of Mentahotep. They would expand territory and trade with expeditions to Punt, aka Put, aka the Horn of Africa. In modern geography, it's likely the same area occupied by the countries of Somalia, Ethiopia, and Sudan, among others. 
there would be territorial gains as far east as the Red Sea. After the Mentehoteps came a possible usurper, Amenhotep I, the first ruler of the 12th dynasty. Amenhotep would further consolidate and centralize power at the expense of the nomarchs. He would also send at least one military campaign to Nubia, marking the continuation of an on-again, off-again war with their southern neighbor, a series of conflicts that would last well into the Roman era some 2,000 years later. A later pharaoh of the same period, Sennuraset III, would lead Egyptian troops deep into Nubia, pushing Egyptian-controlled territory further south and claiming the natural resources, such as gold, that came along with the newly acquired land. He would cement control of the area by constructing a series of huge forts along the border between the nations. With the prosperity of the Middle Kingdom came an increase in population, to the point that food consumption began to outpace production. At the same time, the pharaoh, in this case Amenhotep III, focused the government's attention on mining operations in the Sinai Peninsula and Fayum. Fayum is thought to be one and the same as the city of Python, mentioned in the first chapter of Exodus. As if that wasn't enough, the pharaoh allowed an influx of settlers from Western Asia. Now that certainly sounds familiar. Egyptian documents seem to indicate that the pharaoh intended to use these immigrants as laborers for monument construction. Then the inevitable happened. The annual Nile flooding decreased, then decreased further. Food production declined, and a population that was once at capacity was suddenly greater than the reduced food production could support all of this leading to a decline in Egyptian society. Then, the 12th dynasty would end with the death of Queen Subinefru in 1802 BC. She would leave no heirs. The succeeding 13th dynasty would be much weaker and rule for about 150 years. And during this century and a half, the kingdom would split, causing the second intermediate period, which is where I'll pick up at next week. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.